I mean, to keep those bullets for pessimists, pills for pale people. And in this way, I want to walk the world like a wonderful surprise, to float as idly as the thistle down and to come as silently as the sunrise, not to be expected any more than the thunderbolt, not to be expected any more than the dying breeze. I don't want people to anticipate me as a well-known practical joke. I want both my gifts to come virgin and violent, the death and the life after death. I am going to hold a pistol to the head of the modern man, but I shall not use it to kill him, only to bring him to life. Welcome to Pints with Chesterton, a podcast where two millennial women dive into the wonderful and whimsical works of Gilbert Keith Chesterton. I'm Marie. And I'm Grace. On today's episode, we are discussing the sixth chapter of G.K. Chesterton's comedic novel, Man Alive. It's called The Eye of Death or The Murder Charge. Bum, bum, bum. <laughs> How are you, Marie? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing all right. I have a Guinness because yesterday was St. Patrick's Day and I could not. Oh, beautiful. So. <laughs> Yay. I I have a sparkling water this week, which I feel like is a little more exciting than what I've <laughs> been having. I was looking at our new beautiful logo that Pints with yes. Jack gifted us. So and kind. I was thinking, gosh, people the name of our podcast people are going to think that <laughs> we, we never we literally drink pints. Never have pints yeah <laughs> but grace does for me i'm almost 15 weeks pregnant so the pints aren't in my life right now but i am having some really nice sparkling water i'm glad <laughs> so what have you been up to this week <sighs> i'm looking at my notes and i wrote these a couple of days ago and i wrote contemplating my existence <laughs> and it's uh a little bit uh cerebral but i um i i haven't been but true reading. yeah true i haven't been uh reading a whole lot this week because um recently my favorite musical artist came out with a new album and I'm only just now sort of exploring it and that's John Foreman who is the lead singer of Switchfoot um but he has a lot of solo stuff and his album called Departures came out maybe actually I think it came out the day I flew out to San Diego oh um, wow which is funny because he lives in San Diego and I thought that was an interesting coincidence but because I was having so much fun with y'all. I didn't uh, listen to it at all. And so anyways, I just have gotten around to it and it's very good. And there's just a lot of deep stuff there, a lot of stuff to pray with, um, a lot of stuff to think about. And so I've been listening to that sort of on repeat for the last week, <laughs> just like going on lots That's of awesome. trying to work out my back and stuff. And um, so good music, good soundtrack for that. And in contemplating your existence, have you decided upon anything or have you just had any important realizations I guess um I don't know if it's really anything in particular so much as just like I felt like when I hurt my back a few weeks ago there was sort of a it was the culmination of sort of a lot of things that led to like a low point you know and um I don't know I feel like I've just been given a lot of grace recently and just like felt 
very, I don't know, like just been very aware of the presence of God and Mm -hmm. very aware of the ways in which he has sort of been drawing a thread through my whole life, you know, of, of his presence and just, I don't know, just like puzzle pieces kind of fitting together at the back of my head, you know? Yeah. I don't know how else to describe it, but I was just talking with David, my husband last night and telling him that some of the times where I have so keenly felt God's presence and his will for me have been in times of extreme lows Mm. and, um, and then coming out of them. And it's, so I, I definitely know what you mean. I'm going to have to listen to the album. You sent us a song from it, which was epic. Yeah, it really uh, is. The first the first song on the album is um, done in a very different style than he normally does. Um, it sounds very, like it could be in one of the Narnia movies. It really does. Like I was thinking that or Lord of the Rings. It was funny when I was looking yeah. at it on YouTube. That's like what all the comments say too. Everybody's like, is this kind of sounds more the like movie? a film score than a yeah. Yeah, contemporary song. Yeah, he's like singer-songwriter. He's like this surfer dude, and he's just like so chill normally. And like his instrumentation is normally for like his solo albums is sometimes complex. Like he likes to play with a lot of like really random instruments, but it's not like orchestra you know yeah. what I mean yeah and uh and so this song is just like yeah it sounds like a soundtrack of a movie and it's it's really cool but beautiful uh lyrics it's really poetry um that's awesome about just like heaven and stuff mm. so really good but the rest of the album although musically very different than the first song uh, okay it's really good so uh I didn't listen to a whole lot of music this week, but I did read over the past few days um, and listen because I found another audio version of it on Spotify. Um, Agatha Christie, I think it's her first novel that she wrote, um, which was The Mysterious Affair at Styles. Cool. And it was so good. And That's a- that's a Poirot one, isn't it? Yes, yes. Okay, so I thought he's old in it. Oh, okay. Yeah, which is interesting. He's like retired technically, uh-huh. um, but um, it was it was a really really good read. I Grace and I both love detective fiction, um, like pretty much in any form. Uh, it was really fun listening to it and reading along with it. You can find a PDF for free online oh, of that nice. book. Um, and yeah, it was, it took some twists and turns and I haven't read too much Agatha Christie. I think I've read two of her other books, um, Murder on the Orient Express and maybe something else. But anyway, I feel like I, it's been a while and so I'm not like used to her style or, the way that she weaves her mysteries. So it was fun to be sort of transported back into that. And um, the main character, Hastings, who is helping Poirot um, to solve the mystery or the murder, um, he is me because he, <laughs> he was trying to figure out what Poirot is doing the entire time and uh-huh. trying to follow all of the clues and the evidence and getting it completely wrong. But then, you know, 
Poirot just brilliantly unveils everything at the end and it yeah it was it was great and unexpected um so I know that I have seen that episode of Poirot but I can't place it in my mind I can't remember what is it I was actually wondering is it um so there's a show that's depicted that there's a show it's it was a long long running with uh David Suchet as Poirot and he's excellent I mean just such a great actor. okay and the show is fabulous like they do a really really good job of it um what is it called it's called the, Poirot oh it is yeah I'll and have to so, look it up yeah every episode you know it's like the the British style where like the episodes are an hour and a half long yeah. um and so they basically I like that do, I do too and they basically do like a novel per episode so it's like the whole thing you know I'm sure it's shortened yeah. in some ways but yeah um, but I love it I've watched the whole the whole series and um, it's really it's really fun contrasting comparing and contrasting um the different detective writers that were mm-hmm. all around the same time yeah and sure. Agatha Christie versus Chesterton whom we love and are here to talk about mm-hmm. um there's there's more of a feeling of the macabre in other detective fiction um I think Chesterton just does such a wonderful job of being intriguing without um horrifying mm-hmm which is one of the things I like about him, but I also enjoy sort of the more macabre <laughs> as well, which is why I ate up all of Sherlock Holmes. Like I've read Sherlock Holmes so many, t- all of all of those stories so many times, but that's great. I haven't, I've read um, The Hound of the Baskervilles and mm. A Study in Scarlet, I think. Yeah, yeah, um, okay. But I, I need to read more. I want to. And I want to read more Agatha Christie, too. I have, like, a vague memory of reading her when I was very young. But I don't remember anything. I've just seen the show, the Poirot yeah. show. So, anyway. Yeah. All right. Well, let's jump in. All right. So, here's our summary. The High Court of Beacon is in session. And the Duke's dining room has been set painstakingly with household objects to look the part. After a few opening remarks about his apparently scientific belief in nature over nurture, Cyrus Pym and Moses Gould bring the first charge of murder, while Michael Moon and Arthur Inglewood present the defense. At first, it seems that the letters from Pym's witnesses clearly convict innocent of attempted murder and an incident at Breakspeare College, Cambridge, many years previous. And Michael Moon's preposterous answering speech seems to seal the deal in Pym's favor until, suddenly, Moon gets serious and blows three precise and definite holes in Pym's argument, much like Innocent did to Dr. Warner's hat. Inglewood proceeds to read a letter from Innocent's victim himself, a professor, Dr. Eames, whom Pym had not failed to contact, but whose statement he had failed to comprehend. The letter is co-signed by Innocent Smith himself and gives a lengthy and vivid description of the fateful night that Innocent Smith, in the throes of an existential crisis, decided to put Eames's nihilist philosophy lessons to the test at the end of a loaded pistol. In threatening his professor's life, Smith proved to himself and to Eames that Eames didn't really believe his lessons and saved himself from philosophy-induced near-suicide. Eames promised to award him an A+, but Smith swore him to secrecy about the whole incident on the promise that he would face the charge of expulsion from the college instead. 
He then resolved to travel the world with a loaded gun in search of other pessimists in order to shock them back to life in much the same way he had saved himself and Eames from a life of depression built on a lie. So great. This I is... like I liked this chapter so much. Um the one of the funny things uh, at the beginning of this chapter, I believe, was um the setup that they have for Innocent Smith. Mm-hmm. Do you remember he's surrounded by chairs to uh-huh. fence him in? <laughs> so they like pen him in with chairs and they've given him paper and paper okay. and pens. So that he can basically play while they're doing this, <laughs> while they're having the proceedings. And that made me laugh so hard. Yeah. It just, it was the like, fact as that if- it's like, I don't know, like they give him, I think they give him the paper and pens like they would give anybody that was, you know, in a trial. But instead of actually like writing his thoughts, he just makes paper hats. <laughs> yeah. He's making he's making things out of the paper and drawing. I think I I just I think it's wonderful. It takes a lot of the edge off of the trial from the start. (laughs) You're like, okay, they fenced this massive man in with uh, flimsy chairs and which he could escape from at any time. And it says he was carefully fenced in with a quadrilateral of light bedroom chairs, any of which he could have tossed out of the window with his big toe. (laughs) (laughs) i love innocent so much i know so wow this accusation though attempted murder at um yeah attempted murder at breakspear this is really shocking yeah and it sounds like he has well we we hear a letter from um who is it from the from the sub warden right the sub warden the sub warden warden of Shakespeare, and then there's also like the porter or something who, who confirm witnessed. yeah yeah they confirm this uh, but I loved what you wrote Grace in the uh, in the summary because you wrote that they had gotten a response from Eames himself but they couldn't comprehend it yeah <laughs> so, so- yeah, so it's it's so interesting. I I really like how the the court actually proceeds. So they start out like it's this very uh, official court case, and they have to make these sort of philosophical statements before they begin actually reading the evidence and all of this. And so Pym gives this long um, scientific explanation about how he believes that um, innocent has not is not a good man who has done bad things or even just a man who has done bad things, but that he himself, his nature is evil. And it doesn't Mm. matter what circumstances he would have ever found himself in, in his life that he at some point would have murdered because that is who he is. Right. So it's interesting that like, that's his, that's his take on life. It's definitely nature over nurture. Like there's no, um, also kind of getting it, around that it's a very non-religious belief or like non-christian belief that right. people are like born good or evil whereas like as christians we believe that everybody is born with the potential to well everybody is born good mm-hmm. god creates us to be good um but that you know we have the potential to do good or evil but we are not innately evil mm-hmm. yeah the that I'll read the line. We do not denounce Smith as a murderer, but rather as a murderous man. 
which is actually a greater accusation, I think, than yeah. saying, oh, in a moment of passion, mm-hmm. so, I'm not justifying murder, but in a moment of passion, such and such person commits this crime. Mm-hmm. As happens in in life, sometimes people make a bad decision, like they have a bad, they make a bad choice. Mm-hmm. But he's saying, yeah, the nature, your nature is to be murderous. And that's who you are. Yeah. And then Michael immediately proceeds with trying to explain that Warner is similarly the type of man to get murdered. (laughs) He argues that like he has the nature of someone who would be. Yes murdered (laughs) and then he gives all these letters like do you think these letters were actual letters or they were just stuff michael was making up (laughs) yeah okay so well no i think the letters are real on both sides but here is my question um i don't know if this is just a moment where we're supposed to suspend our disbelief or whatever as we are meant to in fiction much of the time but how could they have gotten all of this? <laughs> well, just uh, in, like how have these guys in a few minutes? <laughs> all, yeah, in, in in just a few minutes of walking from the garden, from the first accusations, yeah. back inside, like let's say within a half hour's time or an hour's time, yeah. they all of a sudden have contacted all of these different characters from all over. Yeah, the, all over, well, and we're, we're gonna, gonna see all over the world. <laughs> And it's like the it's not reasonable Uh, that they would have been able to a know who to contact and uh, b contact them and get letters back uh in this amount of time. Pim and Warner, it makes more sense that they have things because he's been investigating him. Exactly. He's been he's like a case study or whatever. Like he's been, you know, and they've been trying to find him and whatever. Um, I'm wondering, though, too, if. If if I'm trying to make this actually work out logically, um, if innocent himself carries the letters around <sighs> with him, right. Interesting. Expecting that there's going to be a trial. Like he is gotten to know Michael Moon, like that as if he's lawyer, that led him and Warner to himself. Yeah. Kind of. And like has, and he has all these other letters that he can hand then to Michael as the, defense you know what I mean but I don't know I don't know if that ruins the magic maybe (laughs) I think that's the most logical explanation I don't think it really makes sense otherwise um yeah I I also am totally okay with it not making sense (laughs) yeah yeah no I mean the fact is that the evidence as our listeners will see it rings true Mm -hmm. and you know it's accepted as true I think the letters are genuine um it's just hilarious that I don't know. It, it it seems like a big hole that Chesterton doesn't mind leaving there just for the humor of it. Yeah. It almost makes it so much more clear what a farce this is, this right. entire trial. It's like we <laughs> let's fast forward. We've got all the evidence on hand to to have this trial that isn't really deciding whether or not he's a, a lunatic. Although Yeah. That's where we're at and that's what we have. So Yeah. I was I was cracking up at the fact that like whatever Pym says first, he's like quoting some philosopher or some not philosopher, some like scientist, uh, the doctor in Milwaukee 
uh, sauna shine or something like that, mm-hmm. which is basically like sunshine, right? Yeah. You say it. But yeah. then Michael Moon later, like, basically throws back other quote unquote evidence or not evidence, but scientific evidence in his face. But he says, uh, the whole matter is expounded in Dr. Moonashine's monumental work. <laughs> Sunshine and moonshine. <laughs> yeah. yeah, exactly. I love it. It's <laughs> it's meant it's meant to make people laugh for sure. Yeah. And, and Pim Pim even like recognizes his humor and is basically like angry, but he's like Okay, I admit you're funny, but (laughs) I'm still mad, though. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, man. So, okay, so we we settle in for the trial. Pim makes his kind of ridiculous statements. But, you know, some people actually do believe this. Yeah, there are types of people and they can't really do anything to change it. Moon is hilarious and basically says, well, you are destined to be a victim, Uh Warner. Destined to be murders about people who have like punched him in the face because he was annoying and pretentious. That that is maybe my favorite part of the whole chapter. <laughs> I know. Um, which just tells you the kind of man that Warner is. Like, why why is he doing this? What is his motivation for following through with this trial? Yeah. Rather than like, come on, you show up and your friends are all like, no, no, everything's okay. We're all good. We're actually super happy. We're doing well. Mm-hmm. And he doesn't say, yeah, okay, um, great. Well, let me get to know this guy. He's he's like on this rampage. He's determined to do what he will do. Yeah. And I think he's determined to be serious about everything. Like, I think he's determined not to be vulnerable, to laugh, to show any sort of softness. You know, like, I think he wants to be seen like with a certain image, there's like a pride or something that's there. Agreed. Um, that is probably the, a pride that's masking like an insecurity, you know? And um, part of me wonders if like he led Pim and Warner to this trial because, and maybe I'm getting a little ahead of myself here, but because he has some understanding that shooting at him will not wake him up in the way huh. that that worked for for Eames. And then waking up the other members of the house worked in a certain way. But for Warner, he is so determined to be serious. He's so uh-huh. stuck in his ways and he's such a, uh, well, he's not very interesting character, but he's a, a unique character, I guess. Uh-huh. And this trial is maybe his way of saying, okay, well, I can't actually bring you to life with the pistol, but maybe we can bring you to life in this other way. Mm-hmm. I don't know. Yeah, maybe. Maybe so. Um, it's interesting because Michael seems to just make a complete fool of himself when he's trying to defend um, innocent at first. He just seems to be making stuff up. But then he sort of turns on Pim when Pim calls him out and points out the sort of obvious, it should be, should have been obvious facts that prove that there's something else at work here. Um, so at the university, he apparently is seen shooting at Eames, this professor, And again, he shoots all around his head, like empties a whole round of bullets around his head, doesn't actually shoot him. Um, And the letters even say they present like a a picture of him at university as like, here's how he was at university. And it's a picture of the university shooting team that he has just won awards for being the best marksman or whatever. (laughs) 
<laughs> and so it's like, right. okay, like you if hold he, the if you record. wanted to shoot him dead, he could have shot, you know, he would yeah, have and shot from him. four feet away from him. You know, it's not like he was, you know, a far distance or whatever, but it's like also none of the victims, including Eames, uh, actually testify against him. So they said that Eames's letter was like hard to decipher, hard to understand. It was confusing. And Michael was like, what you really mean is he wasn't accusing him of murder or attempted yeah. murder. <laughs> and it was actually very warm and pleasant. Right. Well, and the funny thing is that it was written in conjunction with innocent. Right. Exactly. They write the letter together. Um, so and and it, it was actually as you're reading the letter, it's funny to try to discern who's writing when. Mm-hmm. And I, I was actually surprised because I think the voice of innocent was. Well, anyway, the the more. Uh, more of the letter that was in innocence favor was written by uh, the warden. Mm-hmm. rather than by innocent himself which uh-huh. just compounds his innocence you know right right so um so basically they they read this letter and honestly the description of the night like the description of the state of mind of innocent smith in college um the description of his kind of existential crisis that he's having um, because of the teaching of Eames in class, who is basically a nihilist and believes that, you know, nothing means anything and there's no real good to be gained. It's just illusions. We're just kidding ourselves. You know, there's no real happiness. Like the best thing really is to be dead, you know, and that's the most merciful thing that we can do to any living creature is just kill it because, you know, there's nothing. So like, that's his philosophy and he's sounding all, you know, intelligent and whatever. And Smith has like all of this respect for him as a professor and believes that if he really believes something, then it must be true. Um, and so then he has this crisis and he's like, well, I'm, I'm depressed. I'm not happy. Like what, you know, what's the point of me going on living? And he just determines that he has to figure out if Eames really believes what he preaches and it gets it's really heavy I don't know like it was really it's kind of a switch because this this novel is really lighthearted, but the moment of that was like really real you know like I felt like it was kind of coming off the page as like something that maybe other people can relate to you know um going through this kind of crisis and if you read the biographies of Chesterton I know the Macy Ward biography really talks about this that this is very similar to what happened to Chesterton, not not the exact story with the gun and all that kind of stuff, but um, but his whole experience of um, kind of entering into at least the hallway of that leading to despair, you know, absolutely. Um, and his for period him, of darkness, right? And it was at university. It was when he was in art school, and. Um, he kind of has this radical moment of the realization of evil, um, mm-hmm. but the also the realization of good and the realization right. that God is goodness and love and light and that like he is the foundation of all things, not darkness. And right. there's this sort of breakthrough of grace, this breakthrough of light that he experiences. And from that moment on is like the Chesterton we know this sort of goofy, funny, silly, but it's like the, the goofiness and the silliness is not shallow. 
it's, it's coming very from grounded in some place of reality yeah. yeah that he experienced say so, yeah i think that time when he was interested in the occult and was going through such a dark time he had the realization that like if this great evil is a real thing and he knew that it was that the as you said that god had to be real as well and there had been so much despair in both chesterton and in gilbert and francis's lives to do with death and mm. it's such a i don't know sometimes our lowest moments as we said earlier sometimes our lowest moments really bring us to god in the best kind of way but that's interesting i didn't connect how this was maybe mirroring his experience at university. Mm -hmm. I think in some way it has to be. It just seems when I read the description of this after reading the Macy Ward section, talking about this uh, in his life, I was like, it feels the same. Like, even though the circumstances are different in the story, it's like the heaviness of it, the realness of it. And the fact that it's with, again, within this super comic, ridiculous farce, you know, it's like there's something really, really real at the heart of this whole story. And this is it. I think this is the linchpin. Like, this is the moment, you know, that changes everything and that makes the whole story make sense. And so from here on out, we're just going to be kind of expounding upon innocence life, you know, after this moment. And uh, and all the things that it sort of led to that seem crazy uh, to everybody else. But to him, it's like spot on and coming right out of that place of realization. But I just I thought that it was fantastic. The letter, you know, that they supposedly wrote that there is um, all the descriptions at the beginning that just sounds so ridiculous at first because they're like, why the heck are they describing puddles? Why are they describing like scenery? Like who the heck cares? Like we're here at a murder trial. Like what, <laughs> you know, like what is the point of all these ridiculous descriptions? Um, and they're like, we promise it has a point and it does, you know, and that's, what's cool about it is that it really isn't just them being ridiculous, but mm -hmm. um, all of that, that whole passage where they're talking about the puddles and the reflections and like mystics, and stuff like that that was I really love that that passage so talking about the landscape of all the pools and puddles there is something pleasing to a mystic in such a land of mirrors for a mystic is one who holds that two worlds are better than one in the highest sense indeed all thought is reflection this mm. is the real truth in saying that second thoughts are best animals have no second thoughts Man alone is able to see his own thought double as a drunkard sees a lamppost. Man alone is able to see his own thought upside down as one sees a house in a puddle. So I just, that whole idea of like Chesterton's topsy turvy like you have to turn something upside down to, to see what it really means. Um, yeah. That is just, I thought it was really beautiful, even in the midst of their sort of comic descriptions. Yeah, yeah it. And when he asks him the question, I want, I want the metaphysical point cleared up. Do I want, do I understand that you want to get back to life? I'd give anything to get back. And then he has him sing a hymn. Yes. I love. He that has, so he has much. him sing a hymn and he says, you're engaged in public worship. I want you to thank God for the ducks on the pond. 
and they start going spotted blinds (laughs) yes exactly and they start going through all of these seemingly like very small details about the world around them and and yet innocent is right like it's it's in taking in the the grandeur of the little things around us like in the creation that god has placed around us and even you know man-made things like the spotted blinds yeah i love how he has that thought kind of like halfway through his thought process i wonder who lives there yeah Um, it reminded me of warner it reminded me of when warner saw the crooked fence and said i wonder who did this and i wonder how he's getting on moon (laughs) yeah right no it was inglewood not warner Inglewood. Not Warner. Oh, it was Inglewood. It was Inglewood. Okay. I thought Inglewood. it was Inglewood or Moon. Okay. No, yeah. Inglewood. Sorry. I said Warner. I meant Inglewood. Inglewood proposes to Diana and he's like right. floating on a cloud and he goes outside and he sees this cricket fence and he's like, he's like, huh, I wonder who did that. I wonder how he's getting on. Yeah. <laughs> you know? It's like, that's what that reminded me of. But yeah. it, it also reminded me just like the kind of praising God for all the mundane little things like the spotted blinds and the ducks on yeah. the pond and all this stuff. Um, I had a, a youth minister when I was growing up. And he talked about how when he was in college for theology, um, he and his friends were, I think it was the prayer of, so the prayer of the guys that are in the fiery furnace in uh, Daniel, maybe. Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. Yeah, it, it maybe it's then they sing that prayer and they're like, such and such, bless the Lord, such and such, bless the Lord, such and such, bless the Lord. And they like just say like over and over again, they're like naming all of these things to bless the like moon and sun, bless the yeah. Lord. We actually pray that at our liturgy every Sunday. I love that. But, uh, but they said they would walk around campus thinking of the most ridiculous things, toasters and waffle makers, bless the Lord. Um, you know, sea dragons and tornado shark nados, bless the Lord. Yeah. (laughs) I would just say like all these random things, but that's what it reminded me of just kind of like looking around at like all of the creation and seeing the reflection of God's goodness you know, that like, yeah. again, at the beginning of all and end of all things is not darkness, but light, you know? Yeah. It's almost as if innocent looks at Eames like before his moment of conversion and thinks, how can you live in this world and have, as he says, these putrid little thoughts that you mm-hmm. have, like, how can you believe this nonsense that you're spewing and yeah. live in the, and right outside your window is the glory of God in the sunrise and the ducks and the and the people and your students and Mm -hmm. it's such an important moment of coming awake it really is and like I think what's so beautiful about it too is there's a very real um like brotherly connection between the two of them even though it's like professor and student it says they're really not that far apart in age and he even says he's like I love you as a brother and this is why I'm doing this like he's he's doing it first and foremost I think for himself he's trying to self him save himself from suicide because he's like if this is true like it's over why live you know yeah life is Um, not worth living if that's the case yeah um but then he at the same time instead of just kind of somehow solving this problem himself, he invites Eames into the salvation. You know, Mm. he's like, I'm going to, I'm going to prove this. And when he starts to realize that Eames is wrong and he starts to realize that Eames doesn't really believe the things that he's preaching, he's like, okay, we're both going to be saved from this, you know? And he doesn't just like focus on himself, but they make like this brotherly pact, you know? (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Got to work with each other on it. I was just thinking yesterday that it's so easily easily done that 
a person can get swept up in intellectualism and can think so much about ideas and um, theories and I don't know all, all like books even mm-hmm. um, so much that they don't actually live mm-hmm. or so much that they ignore something that's very true right in front of them yeah. Um, yeah I I was talking with somebody recently who I think um, is stuck in the intellectual a little bit too much and innocent is saying be real with me for a yeah. minute would you yeah. mind dying right now because yeah. if your life doesn't mean anything and it's like the same to take you out of this world as it is for you to stay in it then you shouldn't really care right but some, something very, very so much simple. Yeah. That, it, that we miss it because it's not intellectual enough, you know? Yeah. I think I'm, it's, I love that you brought that up because I wrote, I mean, even here in, in the notes that I have, um, I wrote my own recent awakening to the ways in which we can reason ourselves into unreason without the clear light of common sense. And I think that's one of the things about Chesterton is that, you know, he's called the apostle of common sense that that's something that he's always harping on, but it's there's something very real about that, that like the common man who is not university educated, who is not, you know, whatever, like that there's some very real and piercing wisdom, you know, in just somebody who's living their life, working a random job that's, and, and honestly, jobs even that are more like hands-on, you know, like Mm -hmm. a farmer or a, plumber or uh, you know whatever else yeah. like somebody that's working with their hands in some way and and just like kind of living a very simple life mm-hmm. um i find when i spend time with people like that you know my my job is very intellectual i'm in the classroom Cerebral. i'm teaching yeah. yeah i'm reading i'm you know doing these kinds of things and it's like i need to spend time with people who are doing things that are not cerebral, you know, mm-hmm. that are, and, and these people are smart people. They just, they're not educated in the same way. And in some ways, you know, I think that I, I have something to contribute to them, but I think they have something extremely important to contribute to me. And mm-hmm. that is the sort of like, wake up and look at the sunrise, you know, yeah. like the, look at the world around you, like get out of the book, get out of your head, get out of the, you know, phone or whatever that you're, whatever you're reading on your phone and just like, look at the world around you because the world around you is what really teaches you reality. I mean, God is, is present in all of it. You know, he's present. He can be present in the books. He can be present in the intellectual stuff, but he's also present in the sunrise. And, (laughs) you know, there's something to be learned from that, learned from the ducks on the pond, you know? It's a balance, right? Like the intellectual right. life is so beautiful and right. so, so worth seeking in, in the things that we read and in the time that we invest in having conversations like this about a book, we can come to know God so much more deeply. Mm-hmm. Um, but you're absolutely right. Living in the present moment is what we're called to do. Mm-hmm. And if we're so taken up by our philosophies and our 
whatever whatever the intellectual life is for each person mm-hmm. like you know in this example whatever it is that's keeping you from living fully for god each day is the thing that you need to find balance with right and like you know for me that's not so much the intellectual life i mean we do this podcast and yes i use my brain at work and whatnot but um, I think I have other distractions that keep me from really focusing on God. Isn't it Lewis in the screw tape letters who really he brings this issue home by talking about how screw tape loves um he encourages wormwood, I think, to encourage the patient to um live in the past and especially in the future but Mm -hmm. not in the present not in the present right Mm -hmm. and that's where i feel like eames is he's he's not living in the present moment really honestly Mm -hmm. looking at it and and living in it and so yeah Yeah, it's almost like you can let you can easily start living in another world in your mind um, and I think the more time you spend in your own mind, uh, like it's like good to spend some time in your own mind, but it's also bad to only spend time in your mind, <laughs> you know, and yeah. it's like something very, very simple outside of your own mind can sort of wake you up to something you were missing. And intellectually, you may seem to have some airtight argument that you've cooked up in your head, but then watching a some everyday occurrence outside of yourself in nature can can wake you up to the fact that you're wrong you know and it's like I I've experienced that I think so many times recently and I've also experienced it in that you were saying like this balance between the two ends of the spectrum that like uh times that I've experienced doubt um in faith like a lot of times it's coming from darkness in the intellect. Like I, I get to a place where I don't understand some aspect of the faith and there's doubt that will creep in because it seems as if I've argued myself into a corner. Um, but then in those times, um, I'm always reminded of the concrete witness of the saints Mm. and how consistent they are across 2000 years of history and how, even though all of their lives and their, their lives and their circumstances are so radically different from person to person, um, their virtue and their commitment and their devotion to Christ, um, to, you know, just like the virtue of charity and serving the poor and just like all the different aspects of the Christian life that they're devoted to. It's like so consistent that it's like uncanny. And it's like, Mm -hmm. there's no, like it's concrete evidence of something real. Yeah. It's not a mistake. It's not like by happenstance. Because again, their circumstances are so radically different. Um, Mm -hmm. But yet they still have this consistent thing and it's something very concrete Um, And it kind of shakes me out of my head and is like, look at this, look at it. You know what I mean? Um, Look at the sunrise, look at the ducks on the pond, look at the spotted blinds, you know, like wake up for a minute and just like see the reality around you. And it's, yeah, Yeah. like you said, it has to be this constant balance or back and forth between, you know, going deeper intellectually and discovering truth and then kind of being woken up by this common experience of life. Um, I just, I'm, I'm convinced that the common man and woman should be able to 
discover the truth of reality. And if only in their lives. Yeah. And if only the ones who are privileged to go to university within the centuries that universities have actually existed and been a thing, you know, um, and like these people who will live the intellectual life, um, like I'm convinced that it just doesn't make sense for like only them to have insight into the reality of the universe. Absolutely. You know what I mean? Yeah. (laughs) I just know. And God doesn't work that way. He, he communicates, he reaches out and touches people in all different walks of life. And as we, as you were saying with the saints, like, yes, we have people like St. Thomas More who supremely well-educated, wrote beautifully, you know, advisor to the king. And then we have really simple, simple saints who were uneducated, but they're like pillars of our faith. Like, Mm -hmm. I don't know, St. Therese. Yeah. Or even like Bernadette. (laughs) Yeah. Well, Bernadette, yeah. Bernadette even more so. Right. Yeah. Because school was incredibly difficult for her. Mm -hmm. But yeah, it doesn't take it doesn't take a university education to live the fullest of lives and to and to live a holy life. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I agree with you on that. Yeah. And I mean, I'm like, like I said, just to kind of reiterate, like my whole life thus far has been based around school and academics and learning. And I love that life. You know what I mean? So I'm not trying to say that that's a bad thing, but possibly the life you've been called to though. Right. And that's, but that's the thing that's the, I think that's why I can see so clearly that there's prob there can be problems there just as much as anywhere else, you know, um, because those are the ones that I tend to have experienced, I guess. Yeah. I think he kind of sums this up well, um, at the point in the letter where he says, um, what I mean is I caught a kind of glimpse of the meaning of death and all that the skull and crossbones, the memento mori, It isn't only meant to remind us of a future life, but to remind us of a present life too. With our weak spirits, we should grow old in eternity if we were not kept young by death. Providence has has to cut immortality into lengths for us as nurses cut the bread and butter into fingers, Mm. which I love because my husband calls them fingers too, or soldiers. (laughs) When he cuts toast, yeah, when he cuts toast into columns or whatever. but yeah, the, the point of thinking about our death isn't to dwell constantly on death, but to dwell constantly on the life that we're living right now. Yeah. And right. what are we do? What are we doing with that life? Mm. This is this chapter is maybe the most important of the whole book. Oh, yeah, I think so. Because it presents these ideas. So in my opinion they've defended innocent moon and moon and ingle would have defended innocent spectacularly uh-huh. with this magical letter that has appeared um which I, now that i now that you suggested it i think it makes the most sense that they were already in innocent smith's possession but we'll yeah. just have to wonder about that yeah um but i think we have even more to delve into because uh, Pym and Warner are not giving up yet, and right. they're determined to prove that this man is a lunatic yes. and a, a murder, a murderous man. Whether or he, not he's committed a murder, 
Yes. The description of this novel, after all, at least on the uh, Chesterton Society copy or the Ignatius Press copy, is a comic novel by G.K. Chesterton about murder, bigamy, burglary, insanity. Right. So these are all these different things. And we've been talking about insanity and we've been talking about murder, but bigamy and burglary. This is interesting. So there's other there's other charges that they're going to bring against innocent besides just murder um, and besides insanity. So that's um, I think in the in the previous chapters, they're going to be accusing him of these things and they're going to have to defend him. So uh, lots of things to to look forward to. Yes. So did you have any um, anything that you wanted to share that you took from this chapter particularly uh before we head out honestly i think what i was just talking about with the whole i i wrote in the notes don't trust academics trust farmers <laughs> and i didn't really mean that i mean you know i mean both but like you know again the balance to trust make- the man who's living their life in the present Yes. Trust the man who loves God and is trying to live a godly life. Yeah. I mean, make, make sure that there is a balance in your own life of intellectual discovery, um, and very common practical life experience, um, living and, and working around people who are both very intelligent academically, um, and people who are intelligent in a common way, you know, that Mm. they, they learn from life, they consider life, you know, but they live a very simple life. I think that it's important to keep ourselves around all different types of people. Um, because I think that there's different wisdom that we can glean from both of them. That's like equally necessary. And so, um, I guess that's just what I meant by that. Um, and the other thing that I was thinking about was to call to mind often all of the things that you would celebrate if you had just been spared and saved from death. Hmm. So Eames has just been saved from death and all of the sudden he recognizes things that he would have missed, so to speak, had he died. Um, and so just looking around at, at the little things of life that, you know, if I was about to die, I would be sad to leave. And you'd be overwhelmed with appreciation for those things. Right. Yeah, Yeah. That's beautiful. I totally agree. I, I've i only thought I was going to die once in my life, which sounds really dramatic, but it was quite dramatic. And uh, David and I were talking about how we're so, so, so grateful for everything we have in like each other, our baby, our family, everything, because we know how quickly all of that can be taken away. Yeah. And it really, it keeps you happier and more grateful and more cognizant that God is working actively in your life every day. Yeah. I think it, I think it grounds you. I think it, it shows you the reality that oftentimes our sadness or our disappointment can sort of mask reality, you know, like we can get so caught up in our own head that we're telling ourselves all kinds of lies and, um, it just kind of, again, gets you out of your head and yeah. gets you into reality. Yeah. So beautiful. Um, okay. And what are you grateful for this week? Oh, I'm grateful for, at least in my part of the country, spring has begun to 
be sprung. So we have lots of green and flowers and trees filled with flowers and azaleas and all sorts of things. And, um, I've been going on a lot of walks on the levee, uh, Mm. which is the, the little hill next to the river, um, in order to kind of walk out my back and stuff. And in that I've been listening to again, the John Foreman album and, I'm just so grateful for him um, because there's just certain, I feel like everybody may, at least anyone who really loves music um, may have different artists who have just like spoken to them and have kind of stayed with them their whole lives. Like I've, I've definitely kind of gone in and out of musical phases and all this Mm -hmm. kind of stuff. But um, John Foreman has been in my life for 15 years now. um, Mm -hmm. And so I, I started listening. I'm 30. I started listening to him when I was 15 and I, it was like everything that, that I sort of discovered him with has all faded away into obscurity mm-hmm. in the past. Um, but his stuff has remained. There's something real about it that mm-hmm. has, like was able to withstand the test of time. And, uh, I, I've, there's, there's no other music that has made me or helped me pray more than his music. And it's not like K-Love, you know what I mean? Like, it's not like, <laughs> it's not like poppy or like, like kind of praise and worship or like, you know, anything like that. Um, yeah. But I mean, it is, ex- some of it is explicitly Christian. Some of it isn't explicitly Christian, but it's all Christian. And um whatever way it is, it really speaks to you. Yes. And for whatever reason, I don't know why, uh, just him, his, his whole demeanor and like the person that he is, I've learned a lot about him over the years. And, um, yeah, I can just that coming through the music and stuff. And it just like speaks to me and my personal, just like my relationship with God and my, like the way I see God is I think very similar. And so I think that's why it sort of just connects, but I was just grateful, just like overcome with gratitude, like listening to that, um, Mm. this weekend when I was walking. So that's wonderful. Yeah. Well, I'm getting to see my best friend from college. Yay. Tomorrow. And I'm so excited to see that lady. I talked about it last week or the week before a little bit. Yeah. My country music um, partner in crime. (laughs) That's so fun. But meeting her baby, her new baby, who's now five and a half months old and meeting her older baby who I haven't seen since she was 10 days old. So I'm just I'm stoked to go spend time with them. And David loves them, too, and loves the food in Texas. So we're both (laughs) really excited to be having a little getaway and yeah god is good god is very good that's awesome all right well, so i'm gonna come over the border i know we'll be so much closer <laughs> to you there yeah um so next week we will be talking about um book two chapter two the two curates or the burglary charge um and i can't wait to talk about it and delve yeah. more into the mystery of this trial um i'm excited it just keeps getting better <laughs> yeah you can find us online at Instagram at Pints with Chesterton. Uh, our website is pintswithchesterton.com. Our email is pintswithchesterton at gmail.com. And we can't wait to see you guys next week. So may you all enjoy lives of wit and whimsy. Cheers. Cheers. <laughs>